0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Travel and Tourism Podcast, my first season. Very, very special guest today, people. In the two years of this podcast, his name has come up quite frequently that I was delighted that he accepted my offer to come on and share his story. He applied for a scuba position in Club Med in London and received two replies in the mail, one saying, we can't use you, and the other saying, you got the job. Guess which one he took? His first season was in 1967 in Sardinia, Italy, as a scuba geode. He worked for Club Med from 67 to 1999 and held many, many positions, but you probably know him best as an amazing chief of village, a post that he held for 20 years. Please help me welcome the one and only, the legendary with a capital L, Mike Holtman. All right, Mike Coltman, sir. Welcome to the podcast. How are we feeling today?
1: Hi, Greg. Yeah, lovely to be here. Uh, all oh. is good.
0: All right. Excellent. So thank you for agreeing to share your story. Now, a story like yours, as I've said, we'll just call this part one. Is that okay with you?
1: (laughs) That's fine. Yeah, of course.
0: Because I'm looking at your village list you kindly sent me and it's quite long. Okay, Uh, many different countries, many years. So I guess we'll take it back to the beginning a bit because everyone knows you as Mr. Club Med. But I'd like to know a bit what you did before Club Med. So before Club Med, where were you working or living and how did you find out about Club Med?
1: Well, I started in uh, my living career in a place called Cheltenham in England and uh, went to school there. Uh, My one desire was to be a professional soccer player, as you call it over here, football to us. And uh, so upon leaving school, my dad insisted I did an engineering apprenticeship. So I went to a local aircraft factory uh, and uh, did four years of study. At the same time, I signed professional forms. So I was a part-time professional footballer. Come the end of my stay at the engineering factory, which was, I was aged 21. I went in to play football. Unfortunately, I quickly banged up my legs and through doctor's advice, no more. And so I was thinking of what to do. I went into the uh, merchant Navy as an engineer officer. Uh, which qualified me from the job I've been doing in the engineering factory. Stayed there for a year, got fed up of the long days at sea with no sight of land. So then I went, to, came back to England. Then I went to work in Sweden, in Stockholm for a year. There uh, stayed a year, but it was cold, cold, cold in the winter. And uh, in the summer, it was too short for me. So I came back and I was looking for something to, to do. And I went to see a film, a James Bond film called Thunderball, and uh, I was entranced by the underwater shots and scenes and everything like that, uh, that was actually filmed in the Bahamas, based from Paradise Island, as it was then before the club. And I later got to meet James Bond himself when I was in Paradise, but... um, I came I was in the cinema and uh, came down from the upstairs and there in the foyer downstairs was the British Habacco Club signing up beginner divers so ooh, I thought this is uh, something which will you know could do me good so I signed up learned to be a diver quickly became an instructor after about uh, 12 months I was a good diver 1967 early part of the year I saw an advert in our British Survival Club magazine, looking for English-speaking divers. I wrote through the office in London, got an interview, saw a gentleman called John Valentine, and a lovely boat. Uh, We became good friends later on, and uh, a few days later, got two letters back in exactly the same mail. And one of them said, sorry, we can't use you, and the next one said, you've got a job. Okay, go to... You get a flight ticket uh, coming to you in the mail. You're going to go to take the plane in London. You're going to uh, go to Orly in Paris. You'll meet some other new geos at this place. uh, Take a mosquito net. So I did thus, And um, got to Paris, met a couple of other geos who were also divers to be. And by the time we left Paris, we were about six geos. And we were actually heading... My village was gonna be Caprera, off the island of Sardinia, but we flew initially to uh, Corsica, into Adjaccio, and then uh, we were carted down to the club there, Santa Julia, which was run by an amazing character called Pops Bassett. Uh, and with great wide open eyes, I was starting to learn the club. It was a, what we call a Kaz village, a Straw Hut village. And uh, yeah, special enough, community, uh, what they call bloc sanitaire in France, uh, bars, showers, toilets, and we stayed there for a week, uh, then took the boat over to Sardinia, into La Madalena. and uh, there we were met by these wild people who were going to be my fellow GOs at Club Med. They were the sort of boss guys, and I was loaded into a car with a guy called Jean-Pierre Batard famous, famous chef de village who became a great friend. He was a, a madman and his thing was to, he thought he was a Formula One racing driver. And we were whipping down the roads of uh, initially uh, Sardinia till we got to the bridge, that took us across to our little island of Caprera, where was our village. And um, we got there safely, uh, fair enough. I was white, I was throwing up and he thought it was funny. They like to punish the British, you know, you can't blame them. Yeah, and uh, there it began. I got to know the other GOs quite quickly. They didn't want to speak English to me. And I didn't understand the language they were speaking. And they were actually from Belgium, a lot of them, speaking Flemish. Yeah, it was... sort of cottoned on after a couple of days. And somebody else explained to me that my French wasn't that good. It was only school French, but the important thing is they had an English speaking diver because there were lots of Brits that came to Club Med at that, in those days. And, uh, I would be sort of useful. I could dive, I could speak English. That was a good start. The chef de village, René Allemands, I found out that he had been a German parachuter during the war. His dad was Belgian, his mum was German, and uh, he got stuck with his job of parachuting into places. And his mates, we'd call it, fellow GOs, but they were all his sort of lads because they'd all just been kicked out of the Belgian Congo. They are all mercenaries. Now, ex-mercenaries. Some of them couldn't go back to Belgium because they were... Uh, not that welcome, and uh, might have got a few inquiries about their past and what they were doing there. So they came and joined Club Med, which is perfectly normal, as everybody was geo at Club Med. Didn't know matter where you come from, didn't know matter what you'd done. The, um, the season was pretty, pretty good. We had in the team six GOs who eventually became Chef de Villages themselves, Really really good ones I learned a lot I learned to speak better French I learned to speak some Belge some Belgium and they were all characters uh, lots of good guys my chef de plongée was Jean pet who he was future chef de village chef de bar was Jean Pierre Batard uh, chef d'animation was Freddie Lebrun and uh, I think it was Maggie Dupont who was at the planning office the uh, season went by pretty well. Oh, Bellings was in charge of snorkeling, the famous Bellings, who's the greatest raconteur I've ever met. And uh, we used to go on a Sunday morning dive because the arrivals, the GMs arrived, uh, it took two, da- two days for the GMs to, to get to from Paris to uh, our little village two days, they had a train all to themselves. And on the train, there was a restaurant, a disco, and they came, most of them came for at least a month or five weeks, as was the case with the French at the time. And the Brits flew in later on the Sunday, but they were posh and they came on a plane. So we had two arrivals to do on the Sunday. The uh, French and Belgians who came, they came via Paris to Rome, from Rome they took a ferry boat, took them two days. We met them with the uh, usual Club Med greeting of the time, which was ski boats, though we had no ski, but we had boats. Uh, any old boat that would do, people, half-naked geos in parios. So pario was the thing, even when it was freezing cold. The, and uh, then as I said, so we had a sort of a free Sunday morning and we used to do a geo dive for the, the geos who could dive Uh, we taught to dive on the Sunday morning and we had an instance. Oh, one guy who did um, join us came on vacation. His name was Bruce Kent. Good guy, probably about 40 years old, a little older than most of us. And uh, he wanted to stay on au pair. So he was a good diver and he belonged to the famous Dragon Club in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, he was chief of the Vice Squad, Bruce was. He, He came and fortunately he did because... Uh, one of our Sunday morning dives, uh, Bellings was on the Palier, which is the uh, line after a dive. We stopped three meters beneath the boat just to decompress, so to speak, but it was a precaution more than anything else. And poor old Bellings had passed out, and Bruce was the last person in the water and saw him pass out on the line. So he, we f- Bruce got him up to the surface. We fished him out, shipped him off to La Madalena, where there was a decompression chamber, very small one. He was okay. He was fine and became a great friend of both of us, both Bruce and I. Yeah, it was a, sort of an eventful season. At the end of that season, I could have gone with René. He asked me to go uh, work in a ski village because we have ski villages as well in Europe, uh, repairing skis because I'd never been skiing in my life. So I thought now I'll go back to my girlfriend, Jeanette, who's in England and see what could happen next summer maybe both of us would like to come back to the club. So I did just that. And next summer we applied. Jeanette, in the meantime, we had tried skiing, a ski, snow ski package vacation. Jeanette smashed her leg up, came back to England uh, in an ambulance plane and all that sort of thing. And uh, she went for an interview in London in the Early spring of that year, uh, in a full-length plaster cast, was accepted, of course, because they needed me as I was the English-speaking diver, and uh, and Jeanette, of course, was the English-speaking hostess at the time. We had hostess teams in those days; fantastic. Uh, we did the season back in Caprera um, with a different team, and there I met the my chief diver. Then was the famous Banan who was the head of diving, chief diving at the club. Uh, chief diver of all club meds and a great guy, fantastic guy. He, his plan for me was to go and do the opening of Martinique. Uh, he would come as chief diver and I would be his second and eventually he would leave and uh, I would take over the responsibility of the diving in Martinique. But before that, he decided I was going to go to Fort Royal the first village ever in the, what we call the American Zone. Fort Royal was an old hotel and beautiful, beautiful old hotel with sort of beach chalets, bungalows, if you like, at a different section about 200 yards up the the beautiful beach that we had. And uh, so we get in there and uh, we had our boat, it was a French chaloupe that had been bought especially for us to do the diving in Guadeloupe and it was called the Count of Monte Cristo and Paul who was the captain was a Breton who was a, of course a very special breed of people and we got on fine and so we were diving out of uh, Guadeloupe incredible discovery of reefs and things like that and, and of course all our gems were mostly american So, uh, a lot of them had known Fort Royale when it was a five-star hotel, and then they saw all these free things that the club were giving, and the Americans were always looking for a deal or a bargain. They decided that they were going to come back to Fort Royale, live the life of a five-star hotel, and have all these free sports, scuba diving or sailing, whatever. It wasn't quite like that because, as you know, the club is a little bit uh, simpler. So they would get there and uh, they got their room in the hotel. And normally before Club Med days, they had the room in the hotel and uh, bungalows. So they had sort of two rooms, the beach bungalows and things like that. But the Club Med had decided one room per person, per family, whatever. So they were sort of very upset about uh, not getting their bungalow and their room in a hotel. And it came to a stage where we were greeting the people uh, off the bus and taking them to their room with their luggage, putting the luggage down and just taking off because as soon as they opened the door and put the light on of their little bungalow, it wasn't quite what they expected. Small places, it was nice, but it was not what they were used to. Eventually they got used to us. And uh, once again, I, myself and Janeth, And we had no American geos at the time. There were no such things as Canadian geos, unfortunately. No Americans to help out with the language. So we were stuck with most of the speeches and languages and things like that. Our chef de village was Pierre-Jean Laplace. His team were flamboyant. They loved to dress up. They were fantastic on stage and used to put on these very beautiful folie Bergère shows, which the Americans... They got used to us over the week, the Americans, but I think they were more entranced by the geo in their pario in their little uh, speedos and uh, half-naked life. They looked at us weirdly at the beginning of the week. By the end of the week, they were putting on their parios and becoming like all these weirdos from Europe. So uh, it worked out fine. Stayed there for six months, that was good. Came back uh, to Europe, did a season excuse me mike
0: uh, mike yep. so uh, one question was this the season though at fort royale where you met uh Trigano and gerard blitz for oh, the first
1: time? yeah yeah that's true um as it was is uh we had just before, we were due to open at christmas and we were opening about two weeks before christmas and uh, we had a bad storm a late tropical storm and what it does in the islands war, well, especially on Guadeloupe, the water comes up of course and unfortunately Port Royale uh, generators and we generated our own power were sort of below water level. <laughs> and um, I got there and about two well we got there, Dennis and I, and about two days after we did uh, who's going to turn up for the opening? Gilbert Trigano and Gérald Ritz. And the storm came uh, what could we do to save, you know, Club Med, we do it ourselves. We could, There was nobody else to to help us there, we're in the middle of nowhere. So we start making, using the beach making, had a team making sandbags, a team transferring the sandbags to the generator uh, assembly place. And there alongside Gilbert Trigono and Gerald we were all stacking these sandbags against the generators to work. They were fantastic. I was hugely, hugely impressed. These were the two guys that started the club in 1950, and there they were getting their hands dirty. They were incredible people. And um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. Uh, Then we managed to keep the generators working. We managed a good season, uh, a little bit different season uh, from what I'd seen before. But once again, a lot of good experience. Uh, Then I came back. We came back to uh, Europe in the summer. We did a season uh, with Banan in um, Caracas, the dive center as it was for most of the club then uh he was happy with the opening of the dive center in fort royal our first in the american zone so we got to go to open this was in just before christmas in 1969 open martinique martinique incredible A, different to what it is probably today there's only there was one narrow road which took us down to the club. It took about an hour and maybe an hour and a half from the airport to the club. And um, we, yeah, it was really, really uh, spectacular. You get off the plane, you smell the, the rum straight away, and uh, here we are in the tropics. And in Martinique, we were there three weeks before the opening, and we were setting up the scuba with Banan. He was chief, I was second so we start doing some prospection dives and as is the habit with divers we arrive in a village with especially a new village where you don't know where to dive what's good with a bunch of uh, charts ocean charts and um i had a good friend in the chart shop in london so i I brought some good ones and we decided unanimously on this place called diamond rock and if any all our geos listening to this know what diamond rock is i would think and uh, our first prospection was out there. We dived. It was um, amazing. Crystal clear water, fish everywhere, and cannons. Yeah, cannons. What had happened at Diamond Rock back in the 18, late 1700s, 1800s, HMS Diamond Rock was a British ship. It was 600 feet above. It came out of the water. It was about probably six, seven miles off the club met so it was a good boat trip and we had once again the count of monte cristo to get us there bless it and um we found the first cannon on a sort of shelf about 60 feet down on our first dive banan being intrepid uh, shipwreck explorer said we're gonna get that the cannon was at least three ton it was enormous so he organized us so what we did was to uh do our morning dive with uh, the divers in the afternoon it was generally school so half the team stayed behind to do the school and half the teams went out to diamond rock in our security boat we freed the cannon from the coral we built a raft of uh, 12 uh, oil drums the 200 liter oil drums welded to a big frame and over the six months in front of us, we did all this. We, we towed it out, the frame out to the rock. We stayed there for several hours in the afternoon, working on the cannon, getting it set up. Eventually, we got it floated. The Count of Monte Cristo towed it back to the club, and we left it anchored up to the dock. And as we got to the, we anchoring it up, this bunch of, Customs and excise officers came in and accused us of robbing their waters of their cannons and things like that. We argued we hadn't taken it out of the water yet, that they want us to take it back or what do they want? And we, it's true, we had noticed some helicopter activity uh, over us as we were uh, working on the cannon all these days. Banan, with all his experience, knew exactly how to handle this. He invited all well, there was four of them, heads of the customs and excise of Martinique, with their families for the weekend at Club Med. Give them liberal amounts of alcoholic refreshment. And then on the Sunday morning, we had a little little chat. And they said, you can't do this. We said, we've done it. You're free to come to Club Med anytime you want with your families. Well, that was because Club Med, of course, was closed to In those days, nobody could come into Club Med, no matter who you were. You could be the King of England or the Queen of England. You could not come into Club Med uh, unless you were a member, Uh, not like it is today. So and their prestige amongst their fellow officers in Martinique was we can go to Club Med whenever we want. And to do this, what they did, they made Club Med Martinique Les Boucaniers, a branch of the Martinique Museum. This enabled us to display artifacts that we found and uh, which to my knowledge, it still is today. And uh, we, over the years, got six cannon. Uh, I stayed on after Banan left and got a couple more. And once we got the knack of it, doing it properly, and we set them up. If you've worked in Martinique, you'll see the cannons on the dock. We built our maintenance team, built the wooden gun carriages, and uh, they're still there. They're still part of Club Med Life, and this was way back in, by this time, 1970, 1971. Our chef de village at that time in Martinique was Alan Bowet. Alan was a super guy, spoke some English, and um, we had another couple of divers who spoke English, which was good, so we could get through to all our guests from North America and Canada and so forth. The uh, season was a huge success, and we were ready to stay on. But in 1970, we had the first Club Med Hurricane, I think. It was called Dorothy. And uh, we had two days' warning. Uh, Not like it is today, like you have weather channels and stuff like that. Somebody called from Paris and said, hey, you got a hurricane coming. Uh, Okay. We're French, we're English, we're European, never done this, what do we do? Oh, work it out. And uh, so we did, Uh, we kept everybody locked up for best part of 24 hours, I suppose, as it blew. We gave them food in their bungalows, as it blew, before it blew. And when we opened the doors to come out the next morning, Everything had been burnt uh, brown. Everything, the palm trees, the bits of grass we had, all the plants, the beautiful flowers, everything was burnt from the wind, uh, picking up the salt off the sea. The beaches were gone. It was a real mess. And uh, I used to carry around with me a shortwave radio just to get the football and racing results from England. I was not interested in news or anything like that. But I did have a listening to the news to see, try and pick up what was happening in the rest of the world we had no communication with the rest of the world whatsoever and i picked up on the bbc overseas broadcast that the island of martinique had been uh, cut off from the rest of the world there was 14 feet of water on the airstrip uh, 20 feet of water in the harbor the many parts of the island were isolated sadly about 35 people died i think 300 were homeless and their landslide had cut the one road off to the club so we were stuck in the club with 200 gms Uh, What we did was try and entertain them, make them laugh, do things. A few New Yorkers started freaking out. The French thought it was wonderful to have a holiday like this. They had bragging rights when they got back to their friends in France or Paris, saying, we got through a hurricane. They knew they'd get all their money back, Uh, ideal, fantastic. So uh, we couldn't get out of the club. Nobody could get in. Uh, We Fortunately, we had no water. We had no electricity, of course. We we did have lots of candles for some reason and buckets. And we gave each bungalow a bucket. So when they flushed the toilet, they could go and get water from down on the beach and flush their toilets. And the New Yorkers were not too good with this, but they had little choice uh, because most of our people in Martinique in those days was a charter from New York or two charters from New York. So uh, finally, they authorities on the island clear the road after about five days and get through to us. uh, We managed to get a message to uh, Club Med in New York, and they said they would send a plane to get our GMs out. This they did. It took uh, another couple of days to get the plane, and the first plane that arrived was, believe it or not, full of new GMs for the club. Yes, so we They didn't quite understand what a hurricane was, I don't think, because most of the Club Med office in New York was indeed European, and they were not used to this. So we sent the GMs. The village was, you couldn't use it. It was impossible. We sent them, the GMs, back and asked for another plane, which we got later in that day, to get our GMs out. That was good. The French left the next day, and we survived. And on that plane that came in, from Paris was a guy called Charlie Beneluz. Charlie was like uh, chief of all the chefs de villages, uh, high up in the club, fantastic guy. And uh, Charlie took me aside. He said, uh, said, Mike, uh, you're gonna go to, you're gonna take the diving back to Guadeloupe. Oh, okay, Uh, so collect up everything. All the bits and pieces, compressor, the whole thing, load it on the counter of Monte Cristo, get your team on board, and off you go to Guadeloupe, and you should be there in a couple of days. So we do this, we catalog everything for the customs because even though La like, Guadeloupe is French, La Martinique is French, uh, they still have these complicated customs things with, between them. It's uh, So we set sail that night, and as we were going out of the bay, there's a a point of land called the the Point de Buonaise. And in the wheelhouse, Paul, the captain was at the wheel. He was spinning the wheel and he said, we've got a problem. He knew exactly what it was. The cable that went from the uh, wheel to the rudder of the ship had snapped. And so it was shallow water. So we anchored up and we took a, couple of hours to fix it up we had to move the compressor which over was over the back section of the the ship so we could get down beneath the deck and fix up the cable we did this nice calm water fantastic and we left again we had food for the night uh evening for the for our trip uh that night we had the worst possible storm ever we were for six hours we were off the lights of the capital of San Lucie. We were going nowhere. We were, knew the reefs were close by. We had no idea where the reefs were. Uh, we were all tied on to the, the ship. Uh, and if, we've often talked about it afterwards, if that cable had not broken when it did, none of us would be here today. We were lucky to get through that. Eventually we got to the Saints Islands off the south coast of of uh, we None of us had slept for probably about three days because it took us a long time. Uh, just prior to that, often an amazing story meant that uh, a dog in the island of, in the village of Martinique had adopted us. And our little dog, Jeanette and me, were on board the Count of Monte Cristo when we went through this storm. Uh, and that little dog stayed with us for, 17 years going around the world, and um, yeah, a lot of adventures. And came to really say where we were going to go. If we could take the dog, we went. If we couldn't take the dog, we asked to go elsewhere. Uh, that's a that's a different uh, story. The um, we got back to Guadeloupe. As we went into, we had to go into um, uh, Puerto Pete to. Uh, declare all the stuff that we brought over from uh, Martinique, but uh, we were refused entry. We couldn't leave the ship, and because all of the equipment, they wanted us to catalog every piece, every nut, bolt, spanner, washer, ring that we brought with us, which was probably in the region of about 3 million items. The, um, same thing, Charlie met us over in Guadalupe, Went to the customs, made some invitations, and we were quickly out of the port and back at Club Med in Guadeloupe. Um, that was the way we handled authorities in those days. It was a nice invitation. They wanted to come to the club, and um, it was a good deal—free bar and all that. Yes, yeah, so, you know, simple negotiations, uh, intelligent uh, uh, negotiations. Uh,
0: uh, excuse me, excuse me, Mike. So this journey from Martinique to Guadeloupe took how many days by boat? We took,
1: it should have taken us less than two. It took us altogether four. Three days of actual sailing, and we stopped for a day in the Saints Islands because we were totally knackered.
0: Was there a lot of cover on this boat? Like, could you guys go in the hold or anything?
1: No, you were on deck. Down in the hold, there was enough room for Jeanette and Puddin, that was the name of our dog, to be, um, they were sat there with a, a bucket between their knees, Okay. Taking turns and be sick into the bucket. Literally. Is it, <laughs> it's incredible. Is, it um, true?
0: is it true that this dog later became entered into the Guinness Book World Records? Is that true?
1: Yeah. Almost half a million miles by air. We've done, a, what we do we do? In 17 years, we did 78, she did 78 flights, 151 medicals, and went to 30 countries. And uh, she was the first ever dog into uh, the Maldives when I was chef de village for the first season there in the Maldives Islands, and they'd never seen a dog before. That's a different story. Okay, yeah,
0: yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. So now you're in Fort Royale, all you, you unloaded the back compressor. Fort Royale,
1: <laughs> yeah. They took them three months to fix up the village in Martinique. So we uh, stayed for three months in Fort Royale, uh, and then we did the reverse journey. We chose to fly okay
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and Paul, Paul, the captain, and a couple of his uh uh deck mates, hey handled the boat because the weather forecast was good we checked that and uh, we got back to martinique and started all over again getting the cannons back up that was our prime object
0: <laughs> wait a minute did what did the what did the hurricane do to the cannons
1: nothing they oh good didn't, didn't okay
0: even, okay uh, i thought I, th- I thought they threw them back in the water or something <laughs>
1: okay. no these okay, things good. Were th- these scenes were three tons we you know, so, get a.
0: So those cannons that when I did my season there in, the uh, you know, 96, 97. So those cannons that I see around the tour report, that's you. That's you and your yeah. crew that got those. Okay. Did not know that. Wow.
1: Yeah. How about that? That's incredible. Um, yeah. We had good fun doing that. And it was a sort of a, I don't know, it was a sort of an achievement and distraction from diving. It, it was incredibly perfect, Greg, because... We were somebody, an organization paying us to do the things we love doing. They didn't pay us very much, but we were we had wonderful food. We had a wonderful way of life in a wonderful climate in a wonderful village with, on holiday. Uh, we worked 24 seven. There was no such thing as days off in those days. Everything was 24 seven. We did the, our jobs and more. We helped out in other places if we had time. We did all the shows. We did everything. Because it was fun and simply, uh, simply good, and that was just about at that time in Martinique. It was the start. The second time when we got back to Martinique after the storm, after the hurricane, we got back to uh, started having a few American G.O.s come in uh, to help out, and uh, some stayed, some didn't, because they didn't really get it explained what the club med was. Before they came, and none of them had the experience of ever having been to a Club Med prior to that. As, as it was later in the later years, uh, we'd get, of course, young uh, people from Canada and from America coming down as GMs. Oh, can we stay? Uh, yeah, we want to stay on, or can we come back? Or how do we get a contract? It, it was sold itself, it, and we got better people then because they knew what Club Med was. Uh, it w- was incredible for, to get uh, some, especially the American GEOs, away from this nine-to-five way of thinking and having the weekend off. Uh, that didn't do so well. So we made sure that any GOs in, new GEOs employed uh, knew what to expect. And uh, we'd give them lots of chats, talks, GEO meetings, especially for them when they came into the village, uh, teach them how to use a knife, fork and spoon, not to drink from bottles and things like that, you know, civilized stuff. And because they weren't used to it and uh, we had to put on a good, good uh, give the GMs a good uh, impression of what a GEO was not just because uh, some people would come along to Clubman, the old oh, GEOs, you're wasters. Yeah, you're doing this to get away from society, which probably we were. But we were also providing a lot, a lot of people with a wonderful week or two weeks during their probably very boring year. So we were happy with that. And um, the GEOs fell into line. An interesting story is uh, with the American GEOs in those first seasons or any first season GEO when we were on stage, you put on a show and maybe open with a musical number, so you've got lots of girls and guys dancing on stage, uh, the number would end, and some of them had a, one more number to go backstage and get changed, and they would probably be in the first, third, fifth, seventh numbers like that. So, And then you find in the third number that half the girls were missing. It was all the American girls. The French, no problem, because the French... Ladies, they come off stage clothes flying everywhere uh, quickly get into the outfit for the next number and back on stage. The American girls had to go and change in a toilet because the dressing rooms in Martinique were for everybody, uh, French style. And so there was this long queue of ladies outside the one toilet we had back in animation with their new costumes for the next number over their arm and not yet having taken the old costume uh, before the uh, we sort of realized that we were going to go through the shows with just half the american ladies on stage and half queuing in the toilet ready for the next number uh they got over it they became shall we say more free uh and we explained you know this is this is what it's like in uh you don't have private dressing rooms uh, everybody's in together you do it as fast as you can the whole thing is that this show is good and uh that means you've got to be on stage So if you don't want to do it, fine. And they did, they adapted. And no one ever came and said, well, we don't want to do it. We've got to take our clothes off because ah, it's European style. Yeah, then um, after that, I was, um, where did I go after that? I think I went to Tahiti. Yeah, I went to Tahiti after that. It was funny, actually. I was um, in Martinique and um, one of our, the original GOs I started with, Danny Guigny, he was... Tahiti was not really a Club Med village. It was run by an, uh, an American airline called UTA, sorry, a French airline called UTA, and uh, it was sort of semi-Club Med, a uh, few GMs, but the club wanted it to be a proper, proper Club Med village. So they sent a team there uh, to uh, sort of transform it, and I was at the bar having a drink one evening in Martinique and in walks Danny Danny aren't you supposed to be in Tahiti he said no nope, I'm supposed to be here you're supposed to be in Tahiti I said how do you mean he said yeah you're supposed to replace me uh <laughs> okay I went to see my uh, chef de village then was Jean Gazzarion. Uh Jean he said "No, don't know anything about it uh called Paris we had phones by this time it's wonderful and Uh, He called Paris, yeah. Didn't anybody tell Mike he was supposed to go to Tahiti? Uh, Get him on the next plane and Jeanette. And if he's taking his dog, his dog as well. So we couldn't exactly fly our dog into Tahiti because you had to have medicals and uh, had to come from an island where there was no diseases uh, that dogs could take to other islands. So we had to go through all that. We managed to get it done in about three days so we could fly to Tahiti. We were into Tahiti. And uh, the team that they'd flown in to sort of transform the village was uh, our team from our first season in Capera. So I was back with uh, René Alamond as Chef de village, uh, and all the mercenaries and, uh fantastic. And uh, we stayed there actually for two years. It was um, really brilliant. Uh, a great time and a, a wonderful, wonderful village. Yeah, it's uh, we were very fortunate. And my my job, because I was chief diver and spoke English, and I was the only chief diver who spoke English. So... I really got to do all the openings uh, of the dive schools and all these wonderful places. And the thing, great thing about Club Med is, of course, they built in the middle of nowhere back in the day. And so we were always in the middle of nowhere, basically where no one had really dived before. So the reefs were virgin, uh, shipwrecks were virgin, everything was virgin. And not like today, it's all been a bit uh, spoiled because wherever you put a Club Med, then there's, 10, 20, 50, 30 hotels that come around it. When I did Cancun the first time, I was by then chief of sports uh, in 79. And uh, the Club Med village was 21 miles from this little village called Cancun, which consisted of about 200 buildings, probably about 300 people, 21 miles of beach. There was no roads to get there except by going inland back to the airport, which was a wooden shack, and drive up inland. It took an age just to get into Cancun. No hotels, nothing else. The same thing on the other side down to Tulum. There was one bar on the way down to Tulum, a straw hut bar. Uh, There was nothing else. And if you look at it today, there's 350,000 residents, God knows how many million visitors, and everything is built up. The Club Med is still there. And we loved it. It was a wonderful experience. The um, then back to where I was in Tahiti. We stayed there for a couple of years. Uh, that was really really good. Loved it. Didn't want to ever leave because nobody wants to leave. But then um, Charlie Beneluz, my chief, he said, "Well, Mike, it's about time you change from being chief diver." And, uh, we'd like you to go, this was in ninth, late 74. We'd like you to go to Mauritius in the Indian ocean and be chief of sports. Uh, your chief of village is going to be an Englishman called Peter Pierce. Peter was a great bar- guy. He was a guy we'd work with. He was a band leader. He had a rock and roll band that we worked with in, uh, Waterloo. His band, fantastic band, probably the best band in the club at the time. And, uh, Peter was glad to have us and we were glad to work with Peter. So we went to Mauritius, wonderful, wonderful place, wonderful, wonderful time. We took the dog, of course. And um, that was interesting how we got into uh, into uh, Mauritius because dogs are not, if you go take a dog into Mauritius, you're gonna put them in quarantine for six months. So what we did, we, Got on the plane. We discovered this was uh, the traveling with putting the dog. We discovered at the airport that uh, they brought in these these booths at the airport where you while you walk through and were x-rayed. Uh, it was just a simple booth, not like it is today. You walk through and there was a guy who stood there. Oh, that's nice. What you got in your bag? Oh, dog. Oh, okay. And um, uh, we asked always that. Put in did not go through the booth because we learned previously that too much for a dog, it would probably after a number of uh, times doing this, he would probably go blind. So we had, in the Tahiti I made this did a why well, it was like a hand luggage went over my shoulder with a grill on top, and Putin had learned to curl up in the bottom of this bag. And if necessary to hide it from anybody, I put my shirt over the top. Uh, She kept quiet. And uh, so we got through uh, the airport on the way to Mexico. In Orly Airport, we got, uh, sorry, on the way to Mauritius. We got through pretty well. And we discovered that between the customs uh, who let us through the uh, metal detector and things like that, and the desk that just before you get on the plane, there was no connection. So we'd show the dog to the guy who was doing the the checking and then by the time we got to the actual uh, flight desk before we actually went on the plane i just put the bag over my shoulder my shirt over uh the grill on top of it and we just wander off with the rest of the um, people going to mauritius or wherever and on that flight uh, sometimes the pudding was found on the flights so and basically every all the stewardesses were very, very nice. And this pudding would come out of her bag. As soon as we got on the plane, she'd lie on the floor and she'd stay there for 10 hours, 12 hours or whatever the flight was. And um, she once did a flight from, uh, when we went back to Tahiti, she once did a flight from Orly to Tahiti, which took us uh, 63 hours. Went to 16 countries, three countries where there was war going on and uh, Putin did nothing. She got off once, Uh, for a pee, uh, and that was about it. Uh, But back to this trip to Mauritius, when we got to Reunion Island, uh, the hostess on board said, you're going on the same plane, you're going on to Mauritius? You know, they don't accept dogs there. I said, yeah, I know, but we're gonna try. Uh, She said, okay, we're not gonna say anything, off you go. And um, what they'd done at the village, we had a group of architects going to Mauritius. Uh, and they were, of course, first class, not in economy like us, poor guys. And um, they were booked through VIP when they arrived in uh, Mauritius. And uh, Chef de Village in Mauritius said, uh, Mike, okay, you've got to go and join these guys and go into VIP, your booked through VIP. And uh, we did. We joined them. Uh, we were, our bags weren't open. We were flashed through VIP. and there it was, put in was in Mauritius. Several stories like that. Um, she was the first ever dog. When I became Chef de Village, uh, in. Uh, she was the first ever dog to go to the Maldives. Um, of interest. Uh, yeah, in 19... I became Chef de Village in 79. Uh, first village was uh, the Maldives, which is quite primitive.
0: Uh, excuse me, Mike. Can I just ask a quick Chief of Sport question? Yeah. Well, did you, Was there any kind of stage back then for Chief of Sport? Or were you just promoted... Just like, just like
1: that, Greg. There wasn't a stash for anything. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they uh, said you want to do it, and you said sure. Okay.
1: Now I uh, actually I went to I was I went to um, club in Paris, and I said okay. I've been I've been every day now for the past eight years. I think it was. If I'm going to stay at the club, obviously to be to remain as chief diver, uh, it's not going to work out. They said okay. You can be chief of sports now. <laughs> so, okay, that was, that was fine, and Chef de, Chef de Village, it was interesting, I think it was a capacity to drink large amounts of beer that was our credentials to become Chef de Village, but um, when I finally did what we called a stage, I was, they said, okay, Mike, you're going to be Chef de Village, come to Paris, and for three whole days, we sat in various rooms, laughed, joked, picked up some information spent the nights drinking and we were turned out after three days as Chef de Village. There was no preparation in the village because they reckoned that we had been in club med long enough and we were intelligent enough to understand what we could do and what we could not do. And the basic thing was that they got across to us was that our, you look after your geos, the geos will look after the GMs. And uh, that's all stayed with me. And regardless of what happens in your village, you've got to make it work. You've got to find a solution if it's needed, and we're here to help. Um, which was very different from back in the day when we had, like in Caprero, there was one telephone uh, to get a make a call was like climbing Mount Everest. It was uh, impossible because so many, you know, so much work needed to be related to Paris to help get information and things like that, that more or less the offices occupied the phone most of the day. The GMs couldn't phone because, of course, no mobiles then, thankfully. They didn't want to phone. The whole idea in those early days was to come to Club Med for four or five weeks and forget about the rest of the world, forget about whoever back home, and just have a good time. That's what it was all about. That was one of the philosophies of the original Club Med. Remember, it was started um, 1950 after the war and the whole idea of Jar Blitz and Gilbert trigono was to get people away from the thoughts of the war, TVs, there's no TVs or anything like that, no radios, no phones, no nothing, and no keys on the door. Uh, yeah, keys, that was uh, when we opened the American Zone, that was a shocker. Every American wanted a key to their room. We couldn't understand why they needed a key if they had any gold or silver or valuables or anything like that, because it's not the sort of thing you'd bring to Club Med. But um, they got over it and um, they learned that there were no keys for a while. Uh, That went on for probably four years after we opened the American Zone, but uh, eventually then we, when we started getting communications and still no TVs, mind you, but um, lots of uh, things from really what you call normal life was sort of infiltrating into Club Med. Uh, of course, eventually TV, television came in and we had uh, security boxes in the rooms before that. You left all your money and anything you had in the central area of the bank. Uh, and it was all in one vault and all looked after by the bank team. Checking out within, back in the day it was a nightmare because you had to go to uh, the planning office, which was in one desk in the reception. Then you had to go and go to the bank. Then you had to go back to the planning office. It was horrendous, uh, but and there was nothing electronic. There was no computers or anything like that. The first computers I ever saw at Club Med were uh, in a second season in Fort Royal, when the hostess team, with a hostess team which took care of all the information in the village and welcome to the restaurant which eventually probably by your time and a lot of the time of the GOs, did not exist anymore and they were so fantastic these girls jeanette my wife she was in charge of the team and um, they would welcome you in the restaurant the whole idea was to create the famous tables of eight everything was a table of eight and the hostesses created a compatible table if they saw you were couples they would try and place you at a couple's tables if you only spoke one language we try and place you at that uh, language speaking uh, table that would suit you or if you were a single we try and put you at a single table uh, it was a wonderful system and it helped so much in uh, the friendliness in the village and for people making contact and um, used to get people come into the restaurant see the hostess is the entrance of the restaurant and say okay i want to go to a table where i know nobody i want to Make new friends. Fine. We can do that. Anything you wanted. Nobody sat by themselves. There was no tables of two or anything like that. Uh, It was always a table of eight and it worked really well. Also, there was a hostess desk, which was open for about from about eight in the morning till midnight, where anybody could go and get information and buy Barbies because we used Barbies in those days, Um, the famous Barbies. There was no free bar or anything like that. Uh, The Geos were allotted a couple of bags of Barbie a month and uh, it incited them to get friendly with the GMs um, because then the GMs would buy them drinks. And it was wonderful when we had British uh, GMs in the village, especially in my first seasons, because the first thing they do is, would you like a drink? Let's have a drink together. Uh, It's the way we meet and greet in uh, England uh Britain and um it was wonderful wasn't quite the same over uh, in the what we call got to call the American zone uh, whereby everybody seemed to buy their own drinks and didn't buy anybody else a drink uh the American GMs were mesmerized by the the system of the Barbies which was invented by Club Med so because wearing a Pario you had nowhere where you could put your money or your Barbies so you strung them around your neck, and that was it. The GMs coming in those first seasons to the Straw Hut villages, they uh, all they brought were parios. They never brought anything else. There was no such thing as shorts and shirts and stuff like that. Uh, they just wore parios barefoot in the sand. And uh, so they. a lot of them, most of them came with just hand luggage. They had nothing else, um, no suitcases, which was a great thing for the geos because the geos used to do the baggage at the time which was wonderful and it got complicated when we opened the american zone because everybody arrived with these quick suitcases and things and um that's when they brought in the maintenance team to do the heavy lifting with all the baggages and things like that it was um yeah it was uh, a discovery for us if you like when they opened the Americans up. but we adapted as the americans adapted to us and the canadians adapted to us And it was round about, I think, probably about uh, uh, late 70s when we started getting Canadian geos. And, of course, they're great because not only are they nice and completely suited for our crazy lifestyle, they spoke English and French. Uh, And as the villages were getting more and more mixed now, it was a huge advantage, especially for me and Jeanette, to have other people that... Saw good English and French, and the American duos as well uh, started increasing, which was a good thing. And uh, completely adapted to the villages, they were better warned, they were better prepared before they actually arrived in the village. So everything was a great deal better organized, and um, it was a, it was a big help. The um,
0: Okay, Mike, uh, we are at an hour, so I would like to have you back again, if you would uh, be so kind, and then we'll take your, the next interview will be from like Chief of Village forward, okay? So, okay. Like, you gave us a lot to chew on there. I know a lot of people are going to be very happy to hear this, especially because you talked a lot about med in the early days. Uh, besides all the people you mentioned, was there anyone else you enjoyed uh, working with from your time as a uh, first season up to Chief of oh, Village? Yeah,
1: um, I learned... great deal from most of the chefs de Villages. uh, Usually uh, things what to do in... The French had a wonderful outlook on things that nothing is impossible. It doesn't even enter their heads and uh, I learned this and it's true. Uh, And the other thing you're good at if if things go wrong is to bury your head in the sand. ignore it. It sometimes works out. But um, other great chiefs I've met, of course, there was the legendary Bernie Pollack, who was a great guy, a jazz musician guy from uh, Paris in France. And I worked with Bernie for a number of seasons. We always had so much music in the village. It was incredible. And so many, he loved crazy characters. And he used to find all these people All over the place and uh, come to the village and play for us. He even got the in Guadeloupe, he got the greatest musicians of jazz to come and play for free at the club. It was quite amazing. Uh, Other chef de villages, of course, Charlie Benalouze was my chef de village, René Alamons was my chef de village, Jean Gazarion, Pierre Jean Laplace, Christian Fuller, all incredible characters and all wonderful people but they were all mostly established before I came to the club uh, Maurice Van Eyck, more we did lots of seasons together when he he was second I was chief diver he was from Belgium then he was second to Bernie Pollack there was Jean-Pierre Bosque was a wonderful chef de village and a wonderful chief diver Jean-Pierre Bata of course legend in his own Wright is an incredible man, an incredible chef de village, uh, with the thought that he could do anything. Um, yeah, Freddy Lebrun is another one, and um, a few that became chefs de villages, along with me, Philippe Labatte, uh, Dutron, they were really great guys and um, wonderful chiefs of villages who were prepared to go and do anything. Yeah, uh, some really, really great people. Uh, that have proved their worth to the club, and because of them, the club is still going today, although it's a vastly different form to what it was. Uh, These people, and I often think of who came before me, because I joined in 67, the club started in 50, 1950, and all those people that, that I only heard talk about in those years before I joined, they must have gone through incredible, uh, stories and things and things done things they shouldn't have done to keep the go the club going along. And, um, ah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing for the stories that they must have these people. And sadly many of them are no longer with us. And, uh, it's good that you get the stories out of us, Greg, because, um, yeah, I I've got a, I'm going to write some books. Uh, I've started already. Because I think I've got stories to tell, and um, but it's just finding the time, which is a yes. <laughs> very difficult, as you well know.
0: Well, this is the Even next best if- nice thing uh, to the book. You know, it's kind of like the oral oral tradition. You know, so we can uh, it's almost like an audio book what you're doing right now.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, Don't let it out. This is for only for club med um, no X <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, I think everyone's gonna be amazed uh, at all your stories and the ones to come too. So I think, yeah, we'll we'll stop it here and then um, have you back if you would, uh, if you'd sure. be so kind to come yeah. back. And yeah. uh, so, so everyone, that was the great, the amazing legendary uh, Mike Coltman. And uh, if you really like it, he will be back and we're gonna pick up from, from Chiba Village onwards. So uh, this is where we say our goodbyes to everyone and thank them for listening, sir.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, everybody. Very nice of you come and listen to me. here yeah, nobody else does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Everyone, that was Mike Colman. Okay. We'll see you all next week. Bye.
1: Okay, thanks, Greg. Take care.